Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. And today I'm going to talk just a little bit about one of the really puzzling aspects of interwar kind of intellectual life. And that is the sympathies of Western intellectuals for the Soviet Union. Now, when I'm talking about um, Western intellectuals and their sympathies for the Soviet Union, by and large, I'm not talking about intellectuals who are actually communists. I'm talking about a whole generation of men and women, writers, thinkers and artists who had sympathies towards Soviet communism, who weren't actually communists themselves, and by and large, did not wish to see communism imposed in their own countries. The term that has been uh, most ascribed to these figures has been that of the fellow traveller. And the fellow traveller term comes really from uh, deep within Russian radical intellectual history. Alexander Herzen in the 1860s described America as um, revolutionary Russia's great fellow travelling partner. He said that uh, the um, United States of America was on a similar journey to that uh, which Russian civil society that was growing within Russia during the second half of the 19th century, the way that it was emerging as well. So you have the uh, Russian intelligentsia looking to a liberal America and seeing a potential future in Russia similar. Um, however, most of those intelligentsia within Russia realise that Russia, whilst it might hopefully take on the trappings of modernity, would have its very own own different um, different trajectory. So Alexander Herzen looked at America and said, really, we are fellow travellers, but ha- perhaps embarking at different stops. And Trotsky resurrects this term after the revolution uh, to describe Western social democrats who have sympathies towards the Soviet Union, saying, you know, these are our fellow travellers, they may not be getting off at our stop, but it doesn't mean to say necessarily that we don't have to, um, uh, you know, endure them, we, we have to endure them, they, you know, they may be of some use. Now, the thing to note about Leon Trotsky is that, for the most part, he is scathingly dismissive of anyone that doesn't really follow, well, fit in with his view of the world by and large, but also scathingly dismissive of most um, social democrats and those people that view themselves on the moderate left within European politics in the 1910s and 20s. 
So it's unlikely that Trotsky would actually have had a great deal of sympathies for the fellow travellers, but perhaps saw them as being useful. Okay. So let's talk about some of the key figures within what could loosely be called the fellow traveller movement. The British fellow travellers really are centred around the Fabian Society and to a lesser extent the uh, intellectual uh, talking circles of the Bloomsbury Group. The Fabian Society was really a product of Victorian progressive socialism within uh, the United Kingdom and the two leading luminaries by the time by the 1920s and 30s are the aging Sidney and Beatrice Webb who have been pivotal in founding the Labour Party and writing its constitution after 1918 Sidney and Beatrice Webb have been on a long intellectual journey from the uh, 1880s onwards and they have come to the conclusion uh, during the great depression really that the mutualism that the British Labour movement was founded on, um, the ideas of people like Robert Owen, who founded the Cooperative Organisation, and um, other such um, individuals, that that mutualism of workers um, sharing, cooperating and building a grassroots society uh, for themselves, it, that, they've come to the idea, the conclusion, that really that hasn't worked. And they also come to the conclusion um, that is presented to them by the Great Depression, that really um, the, uh, the, the capitalism, in even a, a, a capitalism attempting to be benign, has failed. And this makes them more sympathetic towards the Soviet Union. Initially, when they looked upon the Soviet Union in the immediate aftermath of the revolution, what they saw horrified them. What they saw was a mass outbreak of workers' councils, of the Soviets, of the workers making decisions, and that to them seemed like anarchy. Both of them were prize bureaucrats. They believed that a, an, a utopian society of the future is a, would be a scientifically ordered, modelled and measured structured system where a um, top-heavy bureaucracy would really arrange the lives of the people below them in a sensible manner. And this does smack of a certain kind of um, liberal elitism from the pair of them. They both look down on uh, you know, the working classes really as a quite dangerous rabble. And the idea of, the, of a worker's state sounds good as in a state for workers managed by a bureaucracy, but a state run by workers, that's less attractive to them. And when uh, Stalin manages to uh, build a Soviet society uh, within um, Russia uh, during the five-year plans, this automatically becomes more appealing, and some of their misgivings are swept away. A far more ordered solution to the problems that modernity has thrown up of unemployment, of waste, and of the kind of um, cultural degradation that both Sydney and Beatrice Webb looked towards the looked at in the West and abhorred. Stalinism seems to tick all those boxes, and when the two of them decide to visit the Soviet Union and write an account of what they see. They write a publish a book called Soviet Communism. The two of them travelled to the Soviet Union in 1932 and were able to um, draw some conclusions about the country. They were guided around by the in-tourist 
agency and shepherded away, obviously, from places that the government didn't wish them to see. Now, to see a gulag, one would have to have travelled quite a long way. Unlike Nazi Germany, where places like Dachau were available to the general public um, via tram or bicycle ride, the gulags had obviously been situated, for the most part, so far away um, in the vast interior of the country that it would have been incredibly difficult to get to one of them anyway. And the trains carrying prisoners were largely um, moved around at night and special care was taken that these trains were um, never, um, their, their cargo was never fully disclosed. So it would have been difficult anyway to have um, uncovered much of the truth of Stalin's Russia. But also, if you happen to be uh, an elderly couple being chaperoned around the country by very vigilant um, in-tourist guides, and no doubt um, uh, GPU agents, it's largely going to be um, a failed exercise. But this is to let Sydney and Beatrice off the hook slightly too easily. The pair of them had received numerous accounts from Western journalists and intellectuals whilst they were in Great Britain before they had decided to go to the Soviet Union and whilst they were planning to go to the Soviet Union of purges, show trials, labour camps and the like. And so they were not ignorant of what Stalin had been doing but set out really with a manifesto between the pair of them to find justifications for Stalinism. And quite unsurprisingly, they come back and publish a book that um, says that ultimately um, there is some cost, some human cost of Stalinism, but the gains are immense. And they both, um, when the show when the show towers in not between 36 and 38 happen, are... Um, absolutely adamant that if the people in question, such as Bukharin, etc., had, uh, were on trial, then they must have done something wrong, and that a few eggs will probably have to be broken to, to make a glorious omelette. Their partner in crime was the great playwright George Bernard Shaw, and George Bernard Shaw had not only praised Soviet communism on his visit to the country, but had also uh, expressed sympathies towards uh, fascist Italy. Now, obviously, Shaw wasn't alone in having these kinds of views of Mussolini's new state. In fact, even the likes of Winston Churchill had thought that what Mussolini was doing was quite impressive. On the surface of things, both the uh, five-year plans and Mussolini's corporatism did appear to be exactly the sort of medicine that the Western world, reeling from the uh, effects of economic downturn and um, the aftermath of the First World War, kind of needed. But if you are to obviously pay any attention at all to what was really happening in Italy and in Russia, not only were um, the, the basic statistics about standards of living and that kind of thing largely falsified and there was very little evidence that uh, in either country uh, situation, the conditions of the ordinary people were particularly improving. But obviously, particularly in the Soviet Union, it's based on slavery. And in, the, um, uh, in fascist Italy, it's based largely on kind of dysfunctional economic calculations that um, when one gets to uh, war, 
in obviously the 1940s, the weaknesses of fascist Italy are revealed. Anyway, George Bernard Shaw, um, again, at, at the end of his career, um, was a enormous egotist, really. An enormous egotist who had um, had perhaps one of the most one of the most um, glowing and successful writing careers uh, of the Edwardian era. He and H. G. Wells, another fellow traveller, sparred off one another, um, and yet both were the kind of the the great intellectual writer, uh, literary figures of the day. And yet, um, by the late nineteen thirties. Uh, there was a huge clamour from the Soviet Union for people like Shaw and Wells to visit. The, not only does it lend um, a certain kind of intellectual cachet and legitimacy to the regime, but there was a, a desire, and this is not just from uh, the state, this is not just a, uh, a kind of a, a, an offshoot of official state Stalinism, but from many levels of society, there was a desire for some kind of validation for the great social experiment that's going on within the Soviet Union to be recognised by these heavyweight figures from uh, from abroad. In America, uh, there is a, a wide and diverse range of voices um, in favour of the Soviet Union. When you examine the various ambassadors and foreign sec- and um, foreign emissaries from the Roosevelt administration, you see um, a an established tradition of sympathy towards the Soviet Union. The one anti-communist amongst them, William Bullitt, is replaced by uh, the very, um, very wealthy, though he married his money, very wealthy Joseph P. Davis, who uh, he even he wrote a book and even had a, a film that's used for wartime propaganda purposes, his mission to Moscow, um, uh, made in 1941. Um, Davis um, was um, very enamoured by Stalin and very flattered at the opportunity to meet the great man. And Davis also acted as uh, an intermediary between Stalin and Henry Ford. Um, Stalin was very keen on having the Americans, and particularly uh, Ford, build um, motor plants, auto plants within the Soviet Union. And in return, Stalin could pay in gold. Obviously, much of this gold was coming from Kalima and other um, slave labour camps in Siberia. Um, and was it was a very useful way of creating foreign currency credits in order to have inward investment from the USA in the Soviet Union. But by the mid-1930s, the early 1930s, I beg your pardon, there was this curious phenomenon, particularly from America, of not just um, well-heeled literary intellectual figures, but ordinary working people making an exodus to the Soviet Union. The American economy is mired in economic crisis. There are a few who travel for as part of a kind of a political, a working class radical political pilgrimage, but many go because they believe that there's work in the Soviet Union, and much as kind of the, as in the Grapes of Wrath, as Tom Joad and his ilk travelled to California looking for work, some people, a 100,000 of them or thereabouts, got on ships and travelled to the Soviet Union, believing that there would be uh, work there. There were a few... um, 
few notable uh, black Americans who travel to the Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Soviet Union. Again, some of these had already joined the Communist Party, in the, the Communist Party of the USA, uh, particularly Harry Hayward. And if you get the opportunity, read Harry Hayward's biography, Black Bolshevik. It's a very, very revealing account of his conversion to um, Soviet communism as a result of American racism and his experience as a soldier in World War One and the discrimination he finds thereafter. Um, it's a fascinating account. One of the most celebrated cases was that of Robert Robinson, who is a Trinidadian um, auto worker, who is a naturalised American, who'd gone to the Soviet Union as a Ford employee and stayed there to work. His pay was far better and he was really enamoured with the uh, zero tolerance at that time for racism uh, within America, within the, the Soviet Union, a far cry from what he'd come, from, what he'd come from. He uh, was a victim of a racist attack actually in Stalingrad, where uh, two white American auto workers attacked him, and they were both put on trial. There was a, a huge uh, publicity campaign. Part of it led by the state, but part of it actually quite spontaneous as well from factory organisations who were um, who looked upon the two American auto workers as the kind of the dysfunctional product of a capitalist and therefore probably racist society. And there was a, a sense that well, these people know no better. There were this is of course the instinctive thing that anyone that grows up in white American society is going to do. Uh, but Robert Robinson himself became um, a, a, a pin-up for this sense of worker solidarity. Uh, this isn't to say that there isn't racism in the, the, the Soviet Union, as uh, many of the emigres would later find out. Of course there was. But for Robinson's purposes, um, he is um, well looked after and actually becomes a, um, a member of the, the Moscow Senate. 
Robinson tried to go home and found himself blacklisted by Henry Ford from every motor plant in the USA. And he discovered that he'd become a cause celebre within the uh, US uh, newspapers as, as the kind of the love affair with the Soviet Union in the 1930s um, uh, tapers off slightly. And Robinson is viewed as this nightmare that white, uh, to white uh, American society, the idea of an uppity Negro who's now discovered communism too. The irony was, of course, that Robinson wasn't a communist, and if he had adopted any communist views at all, it was really now because he was fairly stranded in a communist society and needed to kind of embrace the prevailing ideology in order to get on. And he's, he's He's quite a remarkable figure because he actually stays in the Soviet Union all the way through the war, as in Moscow when the German army is on the outskirts and uh, obviously would have probably faced, along with a great many other people, a fairly unpleasant end had they been able to advance any further. Another example of um, the American fellow traveller community, perhaps again at a slightly more kind of intellectual um, elite level, is that of uh, Frieda Kirchway, who was the editor of The Nation magazine, which is America's, uh, along with The New Republic, its primo, uh, primo uh, liberal, intellect, uh, liberal left publication uh, after World War One. And the Nation magazine had campaigned on various issues. It was she, her uh, particular uh, issues before she became a supporter of the Soviet Union were female suffrage and kind of sexual emancipation. Her views on the Soviet Union were informed initially by her kind of broader liberal outlook. She had never been to the Soviet Union. And she was particularly, um, during the 1930s, became particularly more keen on the Soviet Union as a bulwark to fascism. And if you look at the uh, biographies of Sidney and Beatrice Webb, uh, after 1936, uh, the Soviet Union takes on a kind of a greater importance and a greater relevance. And this is true for most of the fellow travellers. Um, the uh, writer David Coate just says that basically that within the kind of... Um, history of the fellow travellers, uh, there is the, um, he says it can be divided into PH and AH, pre-Hitler and after Hitler. So before 1933, there is a, uh, a passion for the Soviet Union, uh, and largely based on its economic and bureaucratic um, virtues. And after 1933, there is a, a love of the Soviet Union because it is a bulwark against fascism and hopefully will come to the salvation of the rest of the world. And there's an assumption, and it's a flawed assumption again, there's this assumption on the part of the fellow travellers that um, liberal democracy and Soviet communism can have common cause. And there is more than a hint of this assumption in the calculations of Roosevelt during um, World War II. And Roosevelt had gathered, garnered a lot of what he knew about the Soviet Union from various fellow travelling figures, particularly Anna Louise Strong, who was um, firstly a, guided by a strong Christian faith, and then saw um, the kind of the realization of of, of her uh, evangelical Christianity. Uh, in the Soviet Union and believed that it was really um, this new um, manifestation of God's will on earth. Malcolm Muggeridge has a rather wonderful description of Anna Louise Strong. 
He says that uh, he met her at a party. She was, she was a kind of a white-haired, florid-faced uh, woman. And he said she possessed a kind of stupidity that was almost beautiful to behold. And certainly um, she's enormously naive and was eventually, uh, after the war, um, she stays in Russia and after the war, uh, finally hounded out of the country and accused of being a foreign spy. Um, very traumatic episode for her, but didn't really dim her enthusiasm for, for the regime. Malcolm Muggeridge had travelled to the Soviet Union and uh, had met the Webbs. He was indeed married to Beatrice Webb's niece, Kitty Muggeridge, and um, his disillusionment with the Soviet system um, saw the end to his kind of his life within um, the the fellow traveller circles. He was one of the um, few journal- few journalists. Um, him and another journalist called Gareth Jones, about who I'll talk more another time, both reported that um, Stalin had initiated famines in the Ukraine and Kazakhstan and beyond, and um, it was Malcolm Muggeridge who accused Walter Duranty, who was the real spokesman, he was a New York Times journalist and the real spokesman for Stalin, he accused Walter Duranty of, of being the biggest liar he had ever met. Walter Duranty was a um, he was a Liverpool-born uh, sort of Anglo-Irish American um, domestic do- domiciled journalist who, um, through his, who won a Pulitzer Prize uh, by um, cozying up to Stalin, and the the symbiotic relationship between the two of them worked out that um, Duranty would give good coverage to what uh, to to and you know favorable press coverage in the west to Stalin and in return he would get the exclusives and it, Duranty was um prolific boozer he'd um, lost one leg in, in an accident just after the war and he would hold court at the Metropole Hotel which was the great um center of um socializing for the western press corps and various and, and diplomats within um, within Moscow, and this strange world exists between high level apparatchiks within the Communist Party and uh, Western uh, journalists, correspondents, and guest intellectuals and correspondents. Uh, at a time when the rest of the there's huge famine in the rest of the country, these people live very very well indeed. The thing about Duranty, though, is that he's kind of alone, really, um, in the extent of his his fraudulence. Most people like Sidney and Beatrice Webb and George Bernard Shaw and a whole range of other writers and intellectuals, far too many to talk about in one short podcast, most of them were quite sincere in what they believed and generally thought that um, this country, Russia, that had been so backward for so long really did need a dose of tough medicine in order to kind of jerk it into modernity. Again, as I said at the start of the podcast, the idea that this medicine should be imposed on the West seemed to be largely unnecessary in their eyes and uh, abhorrent and frightening. Um, Certainly something they would never have advocated. But they did think that the the Russian peasant, being the brute he clearly was, could do with um, a bit of this medicine and some more. And unlike Duranty, approached the whole matter with the largely the best of intentions. There's an interesting bit 
Uh, again, this is why I urge you to get Black Bolshevik by Harry Haywood. There's a very interesting bit within the first quarter of the book which talks about Haywood's um, emotional reasons for wanting to go to the Soviet Union. Um, he had become, as a victim of um, white, uh, white racism, as a black minority individual within a white society, had come to um, feel alienated from white society, feeling feeling dispossessed that he didn't belong, that he wasn't meant to be there, and that um, it, and it led him really on a not just an intellectual journey, but an emotional journey, for a sense of kind of completion, a sense of belonging, a sense that he should that that there was a place for him in the world. Obviously, he describes it far better than I do, and the the webs as well seem to have. Um, Seem to be miserable as sin. Um, they seem to be extremely unhappy people who uh, are extremely pessimistic, not just uh, about the economy uh, of the Western world or its chances against fascism, but also they have this overall sense of decline that seems to pervade the entire era. And I think I've, I've spoken about this before, this sense that Richard Overy talks about of the 20s and 30s being this morbid age. Um, and they, they look to the Soviet Union as, as a kind of a solution to this, like a, a, not only an economic, but a cultural solution, and project their hopes and fantasies and dreams onto it. So what, what in a way the Soviet Union represents to the, uh, the fellow travellers is that it's this vast kind of tableau, this vast canvas upon which they can project their feelings, their ideas, their hopes, if you will, not only had, was it a, a kind of a strange and exotic country, but also the structures of the previous regime had been swept away uh, after 1917, and it, to them it was a kind of a tabula rasa, uh, a blank page upon which, uh, in history, upon which something new could be written. And so it appealed to a lot of people in a lot of ways. Um, and obviously, no, various fellow travellers picked and selected the things that they chose to see within the Russian Revolution uh, and the, the new order that followed it. Um, it just so happens that there was a whole range of things that it was convenient to ignore. Anyway, anyway, um, more on that another time. Uh, apologies for the um, general lack of podcasting, but I've been rather busy. Some exciting developments, um, which I'm sure you'll find out a li little bit more about. Explaining History now um, launched a new imprint, well, two new imprints, the 20th Century Lives imprint, which should be uh, publishing soon, within the next few months, and uh, a new series called The Century Series, um, which is starting off um, sometime next year with the uh, the Soviet century, the big part the communist century. So there's lots of new titles coming out, and uh, obviously I'm always on the lookout for new and upcoming writers, people that have interesting things they want to say about history, particularly modern history, specifically the 20th century. Um, so if you've got an idea and you want to get in touch, you can get me at www.explaininghistory.com and I'll be great to speak to you soon. Next title coming out is um, Red Sun at War Part 3, Fighting Back from the Coral Sea to the Kokoda Trail. So it's a, a, a tale of uh, jungle warfare, battle on the high seas, and uh, good daring do stuff like that. If you're interested in your military history, 
um, we've put out uh, Darkest Hour, Finest Hour, which is Britain's experience in the critical year of 1940. And... There is a new study guide now um, explaining the Russian Revolution. So that's going to be part of our the, the second part of our study guide series. We've been explaining Nazi Germany, explaining the Russian Revolution. And if you're studying either of those things, those ebooks will give you targeted, concise information that will help you to absolutely smash those exams when they come. Anyway, look forward to speaking to you soon. I promise, I promise, I promise, I will try to get a slightly more regular podcast out there. But there's been a bit of a longer one for you today to make up, so do forgive me, and I'll catch you next time on the Explaining History podcast. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.